my goodness. Oh my God. Oh man, I'm back. What's up everybody? It's me, Brandon Harper. You're listening to the Life in Paradise podcast. You probably think I gave up and quit again, but I didn't. I already quit quitting and I'm back. Thanks for tuning in. I'm just a regular dude with a regular job and lots and lots of opinions. So I come here about once a week to get them off my chest. My dogs bark in the background, and then I'll tell you what's next. My nickname in college was Rhyme Time. I'm just kidding. It was Tripod. I'm just kidding. I didn't really have a nickname in college. But there's one thing that's true about me, and that's that I don't do pre-recorded intros. My apologies for missing, I don't know how many weeks I've missed, one or two maybe. Either way, I'm back. I was at my family union last weekend. That's always a good time. I might touch on that a little bit on the upcoming episode. I do have a big old pile of stuff that I've been wanting to get to. You can probably guess what most of it's about. You know, they say, well, just just start a podcast and, you know, just talk about things that cross your mind. And then I, I realize that every week I talk about the same things. So for those of you that have not gotten burned out yet, all 50-something of you, I'm glad to have you back. We finna get right to it. I'm not going to waste any more time in the intro. Thanks again for listening. Life in Paradise podcast. Sit back, relax, and let me control the Federal Reserve for about the next 30 to 45 minutes. up to all my homies i apologize for missing the last however many weeks i've missed maybe one maybe two i don't know things all run together for me these days you know sundays are my podcast day and if if something happens and i don't get it done sunday it's difficult for me to schedule it in i know what you're thinking oh why is it difficult it's only 45 minutes long well you only hear 45 minutes i spent at least an hour hour and a half recording it at least an hour, hour and a half editing it, which lately something's gone wrong. And <laughs> I used to go, I'd go to YouTube. I would download the video and convert it to an MP3 via this little website. And then now, and then I would use that for my intro and outro songs. But now GarageBand won't accept those files. So <laughs> I think that they've put something in place so that you can't rob music off the internet and use it in your podcast, which... You know, it'd be different if I were making money off this thing, but I'm not. But you know what will fix all this? That's right. Cryptocurrency. The tokenization of art and assets. I'm probably a little bit early on this, but you mark my word. Write it down. You're going to see it. One day, we'll buy music by the song. We'll buy our houses on our phones, real estate, cars, tractors, four-wheelers. All that stuff will be as simple as bumping phones, if you know what I mean. Which brings me to my first topic. If you haven't seen yet, or you haven't heard yet, or I haven't talked to you, Bitcoin's running, baby. She's headed to the moon. We almost hit an all-time high on Friday, Saturday. I think we were right around the $64,000 mark. Today, it's softened up a little bit. I think it's around 60000 $61,000, and it's headed straight up, up and to the right. That's what we want to see. Lots of new regulations coming out. There's uh, some ETFs in the works, which is 
For those of you that don't know, an ETF is basically like a mutual fund, but you can trade the shares amongst each other. And so um, when this happens, the people who sell the fund, they have to actually hold the Bitcoin. I know, it's kind of confusing, but you can't sell something if you don't have it. Well, you can, but that's called a short sell. That's for another day. We've talked about short sells before. I'm pretty sure I just confused everyone. But anyway, the price of Bitcoin is going to keep going up um, until something better comes along, possibly. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm fully confident that it will not go to zero. I think the, the methodology, the way that it works, the structure behind it, um, it's here to stay. It's truly decentralized. Nobody's making any decisions. And I think I mentioned before, but I think that the, the blockchain and the way that it works is just the very, very, very beginning of AI. So... We'll see. I know that everyone out there has already got a little bit of AI. They got robots. They got this. They got that. But I think the blockchain will be a big step forward in, in creating things that can make decisions. But obviously right now that relies on our input. We have to get a series of, of if-then statements and then plug them in. And then the blockchain makes things happen, uh, like trigger points, based on if this, then do this. If that, then do this. And you just kind of give it every scenario. But with all the things that the government's talking about doing in the IRS, you know, I don't know if you've heard, but the IRS now thinks that they should have the ability to just peek inside your bank account and see where you're spending your money. Any account that has more than $600 will be subject to the IRS. Just, just taking a little peeksy poo in there and seeing what all you're doing. And if that doesn't piss you off, I don't know what to tell you. And I know a lot of people will say, but if you're not doing anything wrong, then you don't have anything to worry about. I don't, and I don't engage with those people because privacy doesn't matter to them. So clearly, if you don't care about privacy, if you're fine with someone going through your mailbox, if you're okay with people looking through your windows and watching you take showers, then I get it. Then you're not worried about it. But every little piece of privacy we give up, we will never get back. And so eventually one day, if we follow on the same path that we're following... The government will require that we have cameras in our homes and that, you know, oh, but don't worry, there will be some technology that, that when you're getting freaky deaky in the boudoir, that it just blurs it out. And so, you know, it's okay. If you're not doing anything wrong, you don't have anything to worry about. So I just encourage people to think forward, look down the road and, and maybe think to yourself, it's not this little thing that's a big deal, but it could lead to other things. So instead of getting on a slippery slope and trying to stop halfway down, it's better just to not to take the step off the slope. Does that make sense? I just made it up, but it, it makes sense, right? Like stay away from slippery slopes. They're not worth it. No one needs the protection of the IRS looking in their bank accounts. I know that they're going to hide behind, oh, we're going to stop criminals and we can see where people are moving money. That's not what they're after. They're after money. They want to make sure no one's cheating them. So, so when they hide behind the excuse of, this is how we stop terrorism. Show them your middle finger and spread all your money out into crypto. Banks are over with. I'm so done with bank. Man, uh, hey, listen, I've got the bank story that will make you cringe. I'm going to try to keep it brief because i got a lot of stuff to get to today. But here it is broken down in a hurry it up fashion. So I started out with a bank. I think it was called Texas Commerce Bank, something like that, when I was 16 years old. Kept them through college. Got through college, wanted to borrow money to build some homes, to start some projects, to go to work on my own. Uh, Texas Commerce Bank was bought out by Chase. Chase said, nope, we're not helping you. Go pound sand. I said, okay, cool. So I got connected with someone at BBVA. They were called, it was called Compass Bank back then. 
They think they were like a local Texas bank. They weren't too big. And back then, the housing market was going nuts. I had, I think, three plans for homes that I wanted to build and sell. And I just, you know, I was 25 years old and needed a million bucks. What's the big deal? So I put together a budget. I showed them everything. They bought into my vision. They loaned me the money. I built the homes. I sold the homes. I paid the loans back. And so I, I now said, okay, BBVA is now my new bank. They were Compass. They got, out, they got bought out by BBVA. This is cool. That's my new bank. They trust me. I trust them. I used them from 2005 to last week, <laughs> 2021, 17 years. Was that 16? 16? 16 years I used them. I bought a few cars through them. I bought a boat, two boats through them. I've run a line of credit. So I've, I've done a decent amount of business. Like on the grand scale of businesses, I'm not even a drop in the bucket. But by the average person, I've done a little bit of work with them. I feel like I had a little bit of stroke. So they denied me for the brewery loan. They said, sorry. Oh, this is the greatest business plan we've ever seen. Um, and we have faith in you, but we're going to not do this deal just because we just don't know much about the brewing industry. And if you don't know, banks love to come to you and try to get your business whenever times are good. But when you need them and times are slow, they're just going to deny you. This is how banks work. So they denied me for the brewery loan. And I thought, okay, that's fine. I'm going to keep everything set up, but I'm going to keep my eyes peeled. Someone else out there wants to do the deal. I'm going to switch. So we got the brewery loan through someone else. It, they don't even have like a banking presence. They just do loans. So I didn't switch everything over to them. Stayed with BBVA up until last week, whenever BBVA was bought out by PNC, which is one of the largest banks in the world. And so I'd go into the branch, and I'm in there once or twice a week depositing checks, and I asked them, I was like, hey, this rollout, what is this going to be like? And they said, oh, it's... It's nothing, you know, you just, you're going to go in Tuesday morning and you're going to log in with your same password and your same ID and all of your accounts are going to be there. And I have multiple checking accounts, a few savings accounts, a money market account. I, I think altogether I have like eight or nine accounts. Some of them are not active. They're just sitting there. Some of them are being used. But so there's like eight, some are business, some are personal. And I knew in the back of my mind, there is no possible way. There's no way that they're going to be able to import all of my bill pay, all of my history, everything, there's just, this won't happen. And so I was right. I go to log in my PNC account, which I had never seen before, never been logged into, and I get the error message. Your BBVA credentials are not valid. Please contact us. I'm like, okay, here we go. Pick up the phone. I call the customer service number. Sorry, we're too busy taking calls at this time. Please try back later. <laughs> no message, no push one for a callback time and enter your number. Just call back later. We're too busy. So I hopped in the truck. I drove down the branch. This is after I'd already emailed them. I tried to call them and their phones are down. The PNC switchover has disabled their phone lines. I couldn't even call the bank. I send them an email, didn't hear back from them. I get in the truck. I drive to the bank because I wanted to tell them like, hey, um, I need some help here. Like, I don't have the time to do this. And you guys said it would be smooth. So I go to talk to him like, hey, did you guys get my email? Mm -mm, no, uh -uh, we're not getting our BBVA emails anymore. I was like, really? You're just not like no forwarding, no nothing. She's like, no, uh -uh, the forwarding's all down and we don't, we're not getting them. <laughs> I was like, oh, great. This is going to be awesome. I said, okay, what do I need to do to get my online banking set up? Oh, well, you can just log in. It'll switch over. I was like, nope. I explained to them nothing was there. So they said, well, you just gotta have to keep trying. At this point, I've decided I'm done. I'm done with the bank. They denied me for a line of credit a while back. Um, they didn't really let me talk to anyone. So I, I thought right then and there, 
I'm finished. I'm getting a divorce from BBVA. So I went and opened a new account at Prosperity Bank who gave me my line of credit and we're switching all of our business banking. We're switching everything over. In the meantime, I thought I could just abandon BBVA and move my money over. But then I was talking to my CPA and she was like, well, no, you've got to have access to all your statements and everything. So uh, I was like, okay. So then I call back the next day. It rings for literally two hours and I was getting ready to hang up. I just pushed mute, had it on speaker, set it down. I was debating. I thought maybe no one's going to answer this. You know, I'm just wasting my time. <laughs> Literally go through all the robots and it rings for two hours. And finally some lady picks up and she was a, a, you know what, a female dog. I didn't see her, but I could tell by the way she was acting. So we go round and round for 15 or 20 minutes. And then we get my personal profile set up. It's one little account. And I go, okay, I have one account now. I have a bunch of other business accounts. How do I get those pulled over? No, sir, you only had one account, BBVA. I said, no, 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 no. I, have, I ran a business account. I had lots of other ones. So, something's wrong. No, let's say right here, you only had one account, sir. Okay, who else do I need to talk to? Ain't nobody. You got one account. That's it. I was like, oh, my goodness. So I just hung up on them. Walk, go back to the branch, explain the situation. Uh, sorry if I'm rambling. I don't know how many of these details you want. <laughs> anyway, I get back on the phone the next day, and I thought, Okay, I'm just going to have to endure this. I'm going to have to just go through all the steps. I'm going to have to just keep telling them, nope, I had more accounts. I had more accounts. You guys have to keep looking. Eventually, I go through six people. I spend another three hours on the phone. I go through six people only to find out that they can't help me and they have to have a specialist. Contact me on their own time. No schedule, no timing, nothing. So I guarantee what's going to happen is someone's going to call me. I'm going to be out cutting the grass or something. And they're going to be like, well, you're just going to have to call back in. I know how this, I know how these things go. I'm kind of tempted just to abandon everything. And if I get audited, just tell the IRS, go, go sort it out. Here's my password. Oh man, it's so frustrating. I, I hope PNC Bank goes under. I hope they fail. I hope they get robbed. I don't wish anything ill on the employees. They're all great people. But man, you talk about the Walmart of banking. They don't care who you are. They don't care the kind of money you run through there. It doesn't matter to them. You're just a number in their portfolio. And when that starts happening, I'm out. I, I don't want that. I want to be able to pick up the phone, call someone at the bank that I know, tell them I'm buying a car, run my credit if you need to, put the money in my account. I don't, I don't have time to mess around. And so last week, I think I have a total of like 10 hours wrapped up in this switching over to PNC Bank. I'm still not there. I still, <laughs> so get this. So they finally got me set up with online bill pay. And they told me that all my vendors were just poured over and I would have all the same online bill pay accounts. It would be right there. I could still pay all my bills. So I go open online bill pay and it's like, you have no vendors. So I talked to them on the phone. And I say, hey, none of my vendors have poured it over. And, that, and, and, you know, through the years, I probably have 150 people on my online bill pay, some active, some not active, but I, the history was all there. Everything I've ever bought from online bill pay. And so nothing was there. And they said, well, you're just going to have to switch them over. Okay, here's the newsflash. I can't log back into BBVA. So for me to get all these vendors that I pay, I have to like wait for a bill to show up, which doesn't seem that bad. Unless what? Unless you've turned off your paper billing and everything just shows up in your online bill pay that you can't access. So I've gone on too long about this. It is a giant cluster. You know what? I recommend nobody ever use PNC Bank. I also recommend if you have a bank and it's going to be bought out by a big bank, switch. Switch way before the, the buyout happens and do yourself a favor because it, it's not, it's not going to go well. 
And all this got me to thinking about how the more reliant that we become on technology for our processes and our systems, and, and then when that fails, the bigger of a bind we are in. And I know that seems like a kind of an obvious statement, but it really made sense because I remember when I was with Texas Commerce Bank and they got bought out by Chase and I didn't even know. This was probably in 1996, seven, eight, somewhere in there. And I didn't even know. All of a sudden, I just got a statement. It was like, your Texas Commerce Bank has changed to Chase. And the only thing that changed was the logo in the corner of my statement. They mailed me a new debit card and life went on. And here we are now relying on this online bill pay and using your online bill pay to pull your statements. Oh, and another thing is they couldn't pull a statement at the branch. So, yeah, they're like, oh, no, we can't, we can't pull any of those statements. And if you want something that's more than 90 days old, you have to send a letter and then they will mail you the statements on paper. And this is one of the largest banks in the world. Give me a break. This is why crypto, I want crypto to put all these people out of business. They've had a monopoly. They've been able to do things however they want to do them. Banking is nothing more than a commodity. People aren't loyal to their banks. They're going to go to whoever gives them the best rates, whoever services them the best, and whoever makes it the easiest. And, and this is what crypto does. Crypto, you don't have to deal with a human. You don't have to deal with anyone. You just It's all done like by robots, and it works perfectly. And you know what? I'm not even worried that there's no number to call because things work that well. But my point is... The more we rely on technology, the more bind we get in when it fails. Just remember that. Just remember, I'm, all my rental properties, you know, I've, I've kept spreadsheets on all my investments and stuff in the past. You change computers, you lose your hard drive, you lose all your information. So the two rental properties that I have, I keep track of them on a pen and paper. And I write down a ledger, money in, money out, handwritten on paper. That's the greatest thing I've ever done. I don't have to worry about the file being corrupted. I don't have to worry about it not opening. I just opened the folder. That's it. Okay, moving right along. You didn't, you didn't pay good money to sit here and listen to me complain about my bank. I know. So we're, we're going to move forward. I got some news coming at you from Houston, Texas. What used to be one of the greatest cities in the country, now headed towards Detroit status. This is what happens when you allow criminals, thugs, and corruption to take over your city government. Not to mention lazy worthless, no good, fearful judges. So if you haven't heard, in Houston, the crime's going through the roof. Highest crime rates they've ever seen in many, many years, as Trump would say. Just so far, year to date. Oh, one more thing that they've done is they're, they're calling it criminal justice reform. And what this means is that whenever a criminal performs an act, a crime, instead of arresting him and booking him and setting bail, they just let him go. They put an ankle monitor on them, sometimes yes, sometimes no. And they say, do you promise you're going to come back for your court date? And they go, yeah, I'm going to come back. And they let them go. And guess what? Guess what they do? They run out. They do other thuggish things. They kill people. And they get caught again. And nothing happens again. And you're thinking, oh, this is just a right-wing conspiracy talking point. No, no. No, no. 38 murders in Houston, year to date by people that they have caught doing things wrong, felonies, caught them, had them in custody, and let them go under the promise that they'll be back for the court date, and they've run out and they've killed people. 38 times this has happened in Houston since the first of the year. What's causing this? Why are they doing this? Well, you've got these sissy-ass pansy judges. I think there's like 
I don't know how many of them, 11 of them or something, they're not holding court because, you guessed it, COVID. So I think that they've held court 3% of the number of times they should have from the time COVID started until now. 3% of the times the court have met. The rest of the times, they're just letting people go because it's just too dangerous. And I'm not going to put people in my courtroom endangering them, putting them in danger. This is what they're saying. No, you're not. Well, you're aware that you have released 38 thugs who've gone out and killed people, right? Right. Yep. Yep. So you're, you're okay with that, but you're not okay holding court where there's a 0.3% chance that someone's going to get COVID and die. So yeah, 0.3% chance of dying from COVID if you're under the age of 74. I'm going to touch on that a little bit later. So you've got this happening. The courts aren't happening. They're arresting people, letting them go, not even booking them. They don't even spend one night in jail. You also have the mayor, who's Sylvester Turner, who I don't know if he can read. I'm, I'm not joking. I'm being serious. I, I would suspect he has a hard time reading. Like, I don't think he's read books. I feel like if you put some words in front of him, he wouldn't be able to read them. So that's just my theory. So this guy, who's elected mayor, the leader of the fourth biggest city in the country with a huge GDP, very powerful industry of oil, medical, shipping, technology, Lots of things happening in Houston. You got this mayor who can't read, okay? And, and he's doing things like creating, um, he, he got questioned as to why he hired an intern for $100,000 a year. Well, it happened to be like his buddy or his cousin or his nephew. And then when they questioned him, he moved the guy from the city department out to the airport. And people might be asking, well, what does that matter? He still kept him on payroll. Yep, still kept paying him $100,000 a year. But the difference is when you're at the airport, reporters can't get to you. Nobody can come hassle you. They can't find you to interview you. And literally this happened. He, a bunch of people raised a bunch of hell. So finally, he just quietly took him and moved him to the airport. Didn't fire him, didn't let him go, didn't answer anyone's questions, just moved him. And everyone's okay with that. And they're going to keep voting for this individual. The county judge whose name is Lena Hidalgo, just got busted. She tried to award an $11 million contract to one of her friends to run around on foot and knock on doors and convince people why they need to take the COVID vaccination. This is going to be an $11 million contract. Well, the University of Texas Health Science Center entered a bid for the same job for $7 million. But what did, what did little Lena do? She canceled their bid and said, we're... We're not going to pick them because they're behind some other projects. And, and that's exactly how she talks because she's like 27, 28 years old. They're behind on some other projects. We're not going to give them that work. We're going to give it to this other person who's a consultant. And so <laughs> they give the contract to this person who's a consultant of one person and just so happens to serve all the nationwide Democrats, the big Democrat politicians for, for campaign management, you know, they hire this person to, uh, we need a consultant that can manage our, um, our knocking policy where we go around and knock on doors. So they hire this person and it's all just a dump. It's all just funneling government money into your friends who are not qualified to do the job that they've won, that they, they won the bid on. And then when things fail, you know, things just fail. It doesn't matter to you. You just move on down the road, take your money from your friend and that's it. You're done with it. It's the same thing Joe Biden is doing with China through his son, Hunter, selling finger painting. I mean, this goes on, guys, from the, from the bottom to the top. But the average person, just, they don't believe it. They call it right-wing conspiracy talking points. If it doesn't fit their narrative, it's not true. But like I always say, we should question these people. We should question their motives. We should look deep into their finances. 
We don't. We just we we like the people who talk about climate change and LGBTQ WTF whatever whatever. This is what we care about. We just all that matters is that we treat everyone equal, which don't get me wrong. I'm all about treating people equal. I'm not about making exceptions and giving advantages to certain people based on their skin color. I think that is wrong. So yeah, Houston's about to be Detroit. Thank goodness I'll never live there again. I'm just not cut out for that big city environment. I might live way outside Houston, somewhere where I can access the airport within an hour and a half. Other than that, they can have it. Let it turn into Baghdad for all I care. I don't care. I'm not paying taxes there. And one more thing touching on the, the police situation. I don't know if you remember. I'm, I'm just kidding. That was a rhetorical statement. But the, the George Floyd movement and all this defund the police, what, what's been the backlash of this? Because people forget that every time that we invoke a policy, or we make a rule, or we start a movement, that there's an opposite effect somewhere. You know, it's always, I, I compare it to the game Whack-A-Mole. You remember the old game Whack-A-Mole, the arcade that had the big board with the mole heads pop up and you had the big giant hammer looking thing and you whack the mole and his head would go down another one would pop up? Well, that game Whack-A-Mole is very applicable to two areas of life, dog training and policy making. Because you can't, because money is finite, because there's only a certain amount of money to go around or resources, not just money. I know a lot of people think when I talk about money, it's like, oh God, all he talks about is money. No, it's just a resource. It's a resource. It's limited. It should be limited. You should not be able to add to the count of money. You shouldn't be able to create money. It should just move around and flow. And because of that, to take from someone you, or to give to someone, it's necessary to take from someone else. So all policy has backlash. And a good policymaker will be able to recognize that and understand what it's going to do and then still decide, is it worth it? Is it worth this backlash? So rewinding back to the whole, defund the police. Oh, wait, hold on. They all wore masks. So defund the police, defund the police movement. And we've now, maybe we haven't taken money directly from police departments. I'm sure some have been. I know Seattle has been and probably these other super liberal cities. But what we've done is we've got this group of people who manage the police officers. These guys are the higher ups. I don't know the ranking system, but the, the chiefs, you know, the guys that still work in the office all day, that they're, they're, they're done running around in cars. They're managing the police officers. And so these guys, they have good jobs. They put in their time. They make good money. They don't have to work too hard. And so they're getting pressure from politicians and far left-wing liberals that are saying, you guys have got to change the way you do things. You've got to be easier on people, especially black people. You cannot be hard on them. You cannot beat them. You just, you just cannot do that. And so you have all these cops that are like, well, I mean, <laughs> I like my job. I need to keep my job. So, you know, I'll just, I'll have to just do what I have to do. And so these, I, I'm friends with police officers. This is coming from them. This is not news, media. These guys feel like they're handcuffed. They, they've said to me before, Dude, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. I'm not allowed to chase people. I'm not allowed to tackle people. I'm not allowed to use my baton on people. And it's just, it's getting worse and worse. And these guys are fed up with it. And we have to remember that the only reason police officers do what they do is because it's worth it. The money is worth it, right? So it's worth it for them. And they also have a sense of pride and justice. And it's, it feels good to them going to sleep at night knowing that they took a criminal off the streets. I can only imagine. I, I should hope, I hope that this is how police officers feel. And the ones that I know do feel this way. So what's happened is all these people are now scared to do their job. Well, what used to be considered their job, they're now not allowed to do it. 
and they're being reprimanded for things that they used to be honored for. I know one guy that, I don't know, he took down some, some drug bust, and the guy ran, he tackled the guy, put him in handcuffs. You know, they fought fist to fist, and he, he got him pretty good. He got put on leave, you know, office leave for like two weeks. They had the body cam footage. They had everything they needed. And so these guys are going to get fed up. They're going to quit. They're going to go find other work. And what's going to happen? Crime's going to go up. So there you go, defund the police. You got what you wanted for. Now you get to pay the consequences. Because the, the leaders, the guys who make the decisions, they're just there for a paycheck. They don't want to ruin a good thing. So whatever their superiors tell them, people who, who push for police benefits, they're going to do whatever they say because they don't want to lose their job. It's a tough position to be in. And this same mindset carries through over to other corporate environments. And so I was thinking the other day about how, how a small business owner behaves compared to someone who owns or works for a large business. And, and just to break it down quick, the, the, the main difference is this. The small business owner operates on convictions, principles, and, and they're more concerned about preserving you know, their integrity, their reputation, the, the business's reputation. It's more important to them that they stand for something and they stand up for what they believe in because there's a connection there to their customers that's not there on a super corporate level. And the guys who are leaders of these big corporations typically are not the same people who start small businesses because what happens is people start small businesses, they work hard, they thrive, the owner is able to impart his culture, his vision, everything that he stands for into his employees and, and the customers pick up on that and there's kind of this, this synergistic wave that, that kind of makes it feel like one big family. And so as those guys grow their businesses, a couple things, one of a couple things happen. They get bought out by a bigger business, they sell out and move on, or they work all the way till it's done and they retire. Most businesses end up getting sold one way or another, whether the owner sells out and moves on to different projects or he retires and sells out. So typically these smaller businesses get bought up by larger businesses who once they start growing, the owners are no longer around, but the guys who are leading the organization, they don't care about principles. They're not worried about standing on their beliefs. You know, they're just worried about revenue, bottom dollars, making sales. They don't want to make any waves. They just want everyone to be happy and not have to take a side because they're not the type of people who are entrepreneurial. See, there's a difference between a business person who strictly does business and an entrepreneur who also is a business person, but they have the mindset of going out there and working for themselves and they solve problems in a different way than the average person who works their way up the corporate ladder. And, and as businesses get bought and sold, they, they turn into big businesses or they fall under the umbrella. And I think this is why Biden made the mask mandate for businesses that have 100 people or more. And, and maybe this is unconscious. You know, I don't know. It's pro There's probably no one sitting around saying, well, we need to make sure that's over 100 people. That way that the business owners will actually follow it. Because I think that people are probably aware of like, hey, small businesses are not going to do this and we really can't enforce it. So they're not going to make that policy. Although I wish they would. I would love to have the ability to, to protest against this stupid mask mandate and, and not enforce it. And you know what? I'd let them take me to jail. I don't care. I'm so sick of this. It doesn't matter to me. Take me to jail, haul me off, put it on a commercial, and let's capitalize on it. Which, which rolls me right into my next topic. And I got to thinking about the COVID and the mandates and how big of a, 
a division this is creating, an airline policy, and government employees and contractors, and you know, even some people on the left, some some what I would call hardcore Democrats, that I, my friends, they've even said to me, "Hey, man, this mass mandate, like this is not, this should not be from the federal government." I am full on for allowing businesses to make their own decisions. If you have a business and you want everyone to wear a mask or get vaccinated, that's your choice. You can do it. Although I do think it's stupid that we've now kissed the HIPAA rules goodbye. We're no longer concerned with anyone's medical privacy. So we'll just be done with that while we're at it. But what I don't like is the government telling businesses that they have to enforce something. Something that no one has taken the time to to run the statistics on this stuff. You know, I was thinking the other day, how many people looked at the statistics and then got their calculator and then run their own percentages or plugged it into a spreadsheet and said, okay, I can see now that, and these are real numbers, of, of the 44 million cases that we've had in the U.S., take a stab at the number of people below the age of 74 who have died. I'm going to give you a couple seconds just shoot from the hip, all right? Number of people died below the age of 74. The answer is 169,000 people, which I know there's someone out there going, well, that's a lot of people. We have to do something. That's 0.3% of all the deaths have occurred below the age of 74. That means 99.7% of the deaths of COVID have been to people who are over the age of 74. Well, I know what you're saying. 169,000 people still a lot, you dumbass. Okay, so let's think about it like this. Would you play the lottery? Do you play the lottery? Do you go out and you buy a ticket to play the lotto? Let's just say yes. What's the chances of winning the lottery? One in 15 million. Not a very good chance. What if I told you that the chances of winning the lottery is 99.7%? That, that for every 1,000 tickets you buy, 997 of them win. What do you think you'd say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, bro, sign me up. I buy four tickets and I'm done. I'm golden. I'm set. But because of the media, because of what, what they're putting out there, we don't, we, we're, people are trusting their feelings. They're not taking these statistics and crunching them and questioning them. They're just buying the fear. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The media is motivated by money. They are businesses. They are not nonprofits. And so I'm not blaming them. Well, I wish that they would behave differently, but I understand. They're here to make money. It is not their job to, to verify information. It used to be. Journalism used to be impartial, but it's not now. We have to accept that. So they're here to make money. So you just should plug that into your brain. And every time you see something that the media puts out there, you should think to yourself, how is this making them more money? How are they going to profit off of this? And in COVID, it's obvious. Fear sells. If I can make you scared of something, you'll, you'll buy whatever it is I have to sell. I mean, you, you'll, you'll listen to me. I'm making you scared. You fear whatever it is I'm telling you. And that releases endorphins. It, it, it has a chemical effect on us. If that weren't the case, we wouldn't like scary movies. We wouldn't go to NASCAR races and kind of hope there's a wreck, but we hope no one gets hurt. But we would kind of like to see a wreck. Formula One cars and dragsters that explode wouldn't make the news. There would be no rubbernecking on the opposite side of the freeway when there's a wreck. People, whether we like to admit it or not, are drawn to drama. That, combined with the, these big tech companies and these marketing firms, have the ability to see exactly what we're looking at. 
and they just feed it right back to us because they're, they're here to make money. Might as well give the people what they want. And, and you'll find that younger people, like Gen Z kids, they don't believe anything that the media tells them. They fact check everything. They go check multiple sources. If it's from Fox News or CNN, these kids are laughing at it. But the older generation, they come from an era where we, we believe in journalism. We put our faith into them. They're on the TV every night when we're sitting at home reading the paper and, and after work. They become part of our family. We trust them. And it's just a difference of generations. Fox News used to call themselves fair and balanced, and they had to quit because it was quite obvious that they were nowhere near balanced, and neither is CNN. If you talk to someone and they think either Fox News or CNN is unbiased, do not engage in a conversation about politics with them because they're, they're emotionally invested. They, they are blinded by statistics and facts and data because they're sold out for one team or the other. So that's why the media is motivated. Let's talk about the government. Why is the government motivated for everybody to run out and get the shot. Like, they're not talking about how to stay healthy, how to take which vitamins to take so that if you get the COVIDs, how you can beat it. They're not talking about what good ivermectin does. They're calling it a horse dewormer. I know everyone's seen the whole Joe Rogan deal. And so why? Why is the government so adamant about getting the vaccination whenever 997 uh, percent of the people who have died have been over the age of 74. So let's go back to the flu vaccine in, in 2019. I remember every year, everyone's saying the flu shot's out, flu shot's out. But, you know, if you're not older, if you're not sick, if you don't have, you know, a really weak immune system and, and you know, fighting other types of infections, then you really don't need it. You know, save it for the older people. Save it for people who don't have such strong immune systems. And I know what you're saying. COVID is not the flu, dude. It's way more dangerous, sir. I know. I know that. It's 10 times more deadly, actually, if, if we trust the numbers. It's, it's 10 times more deadly. But we cannot get caught up on saying things like 10 times because we're talking about such small numbers. If I meet someone for the first time and I reach up and I thump them in the forehead and I never meet them again and they go tell someone, dude, that guy, Brandon, 100% of the times I've met him, he's thumped me in the forehead. You're going to think, Oh my gosh, what kind of guy is this? But your question should be, well, how many times have you met him? And if the answer is one, and I'm one for one, that has no statistical significance. And so, yes, the flu is 10 times more deadly, but the numbers still are not horrific. So my whole point is, yes, it's dangerous. COVID is dangerous. You should not play chicken with it, but it's not that different. It's not worth everything that we're doing and fighting about and mandating and masking and fighting about the mask and fighting about the mandate and firing nurses and firing doctors, firing pilots and pilots striking. For what? For what? I like to remind you people that only 56% of this country is vaccinated. Everyone's had a chance. They've had the ability to, they just have chosen not to. Just move on. Let the idiots unvaccinated die. If you, if you really truly think it's that dangerous let them die hide on your house with your vaccine and your mask and just let them die please do us all a favor stop bitching stop trying to make rules the statistics do not warrant this stuff i know i'm getting a little bit worked up i'm sorry but my whole point is that people they're not using data to make decisions and that's dangerous it's dangerous when you use your feelings to make decisions especially when these decisions affect other people because our, our feelings change 
frequently. They're super dynamic. I can't tell you how many times my feelings have changed about a girl. Hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. And, and there's no rhyme or reason. I can't figure out why. Sometimes I'm into them and sometimes I'm not. The same person, different day. That's how everyone is. We feel differently about different things. So to make decisions and policy that affects the entire country based on how we feel about something is dangerous. And if you haven't noticed, division is at an all-time high. You know, you've got Sliden, Biden, old Slurry Joe, who stepped in wanting to unity and he wanted to bring us together. And you think a mask mandate's going to do it? When half the country was crying about wearing masks the whole time? Or a vaccine mandate? You're going to force people to get a vaccine that they don't want to get for whatever reason. Like I've always said, I say this about drugs. I say it about all kinds of things. I, we have to let people make dumb decisions. And if they feel like that's the decision for them, then let them go. Here's an example I thought of. We don't regulate how much pressure is in people's tires. How many accidents have been caused from tires being underinflated or overinflated. Well, that's different because you can catch it and spread it and not know it and have it not know it and spread it. And when you have a car wreck and your tires blow up, you only kill yourself. Well, you could swerve into oncoming traffic easily, kill the guy coming right at you. So if what we're doing, if the way that we're acting is warranted for COVID, then there should be some type of regulation for tires, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're scaling off of that and if we go backwards, we say that like, oh man, there was 150 car crashes last year because people had their tires improperly inflated. Maybe we should make a law. People would say no, because that's not enough people to make a law. <laughs> so if that's not hypocrisy, I don't know what is. We don't, we don't regulate tire inflation because there's not enough people who die from it. So why would we create all this division and, and friction for something that really happens? And this is how I feel about COVID. And until someone can show me statistics, Otherwise, I, cannot, I can't just go with people are dying. There's lots of people dying. We have 600,000 people that are dead. Just get the vaccine. Just wear a mask. Nope. Sorry, bro. I'm not doing it. And, and I, think that, I think it'll get challenged in court. I think what we'll find is the federal government cannot force businesses to have a vaccine mandate. Businesses can choose to do it on their own. If that's the case, businesses will compete for business. And if businesses like Southwest Airlines, who's customer base is probably mainly conservative because of the because of where they're located uh it, they will cater to them and they will say you're not required to have a vaccination to fly which is how it should be which is how it should be there there's no government intervention that is really good for for businesses other than the safety on a big level and this is not a big level 0.3 percent of the deaths have been under the age of 74. 99.7% of the deaths have been above the age of 74. Do I need to say anything else? That one statistic right there, it should be all that matters. We have the data. You know, once again, these people are stuck on teams. We're on team mass, team vaccine mandate, but they can't tell you why. Speaking of a, a dominating force of a leader, got a little, uh, little slurry Joe Jim here for you. Take a listen. What I think's funny is that whenever he gets in a bind and he spells the words, you know, it's kind of like whenever he really wants to make a point and he stops and starts to whisper. <laughs> it's the funniest, most strange behavior that you should not expect from the leader of the most powerful country in the world. But he does it. I feel really bad for people that voted for this guy. They didn't really vote for him. They voted against Trump. So just, just take a listen to this guy. I mean, what a badass this guy is. Just listen up. Superintendent Cup. 
We've got state leadership here, Lieutenant Governor Julius here, Stratton, and the Ohio, Pennsylvania, the Ohio, Pennsylvania, I'm from Pennsylvania, the, uh, the, uh, the Illinois President uh, of the, uh, Don Harmon, State Senator Laura Murphy, State Rep. Uh, um, Martin Mo- uh, Mo- Moylan, and uh, we got great labor leaders here too. What? Tim, what? Where's Tim? Listen, you just start Tim, spelling. Thank you. Spell it out, thank Joe. You, FLCIO State President. Spell it out. And Jeff Isaacson, United Brothers of Carpenters. You've, what? And uh, Don Finn, IBW, uh, and uh, and Robert Reiter. Reader. 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 R e i t e r. Reader. You know, if I can digress for just a second. Last night I was on the television. Uh, on television, I was on the telephone. I'm, you know. <laughs> At any rate. Uh, I mean, do I even need to say anything? Do you hear the way that his mouth sounds like it's full of marbles? Do you, do you can you can you catch up? Can you hear that? I hope the quality is good enough because whenever people are heavily medicated or their mind's not quite right, they're unable to process their words and and force themselves to speak a little bit more clear, a little bit more eloquent. Like when I do this podcast and I speak, obviously there's more emotion. But I, I try to pay close attention to enunciation. Because I don't talk mumble the words together, you'll never be able to understand me. And it's got to be frustrating for you to understand what I'm saying. So I speak very clearly, almost like you exaggerate your syllables. And he can't do it. It's not, it's just not, there's not enough brain power. It's not sharp. He's been dulled. I don't know how else to say it other than he has been dulled. Listen one more time. I'm not going to talk over him. I do think it's funny when he gets in a bind and he can't remember something. He's been told to spell it, and sometimes it comes out loud. Just listen. We've got state leadership here. Lieutenant Governor Julius here, Stratton, and the Ohio, Pennsylvania. The Ohio, Pennsylvania. I'm from Pennsylvania. The, uh, the, uh, the Illinois president uh, of the, uh, Don Harmon, State Senator Laura Murphy, State Rep. Uh, um, Martin Mo- uh, Mo- Moylan, and uh, we've got great labor leaders here, too. Tim, where's Tim? There you go, Tim, thank you. Thank you, pal. AFL-CIO State President. And Jeff Isaacson, United Brothers of Carpenters. And uh, Don Finn, IBW. Uh, and, uh, and Robert Reiter, Reader, Reader, R-E-I-T-E-R, Rereaders. You know, if I can digress for just a second. Last night I was on the television. Uh, on television. I was on the telephone. I'm, you know, <laughs> at any rate. Uh, yeah, this is our president, guys. Four more years, baby. Let's do this. Let's get Biden back in office. Hey, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you think. I don't care how much you hate Trump. There's no way you can listen to that guy and say, oh, he's fine. He'll be okay. He's, he's sharp. He's just a little old. No one. Every, every doctor I've talked to, I've asked about it. All these guys that I run into at these rich people parties, I say, oh, you're a psychiatrist? Hey, man, what do you think about Biden's mental state? They just laugh. They laugh. That's all you can do. This is what happens when you vote for the enemy of your enemy and not who you believe in. Y'all don't know what it's like to try to report a podcast 13 feet away from somebody who's screaming in Polish. (laughs) You don't know. By the way, Shirley Jackson Lee, as Slurry Biden calls her, her real name is Sheila Jackson, but he messed up and called her Shirley Jackson Lee one time. I, I put it on here. But anyway, Shirley Jackson Lee has brought forth what's called the Crown Act. And at first you might think, what is that, some kind of royalty? What, a, what does it have to do with crowns? This is the U.S. There's no crowns around here. Well, this particular act 
it either, and I should probably have looked up some more details before I started running my trap about it, but you'll get the idea. You can go do the research on your own, which I encourage everyone to do. So she has put forth a bill that requires people to treat people with respect regardless of, guess, take a guess. What, what is important to Sheila Jackson Lee? It's very important that we treat people with respect if blank. If their blank is different. You know what their blank is? Their hair. Their hair. So Miss Lee wears what's called a crown weave. <laughs> and I don't know anything about hair or weaves or wigs, but I just thought it's funny that her hairdo is called a crown weave. And now she wants to put forth the crown act. And, you know, she brags and brags and brags about being Barbara Jordan's predecessor. And I know I've touched on this before. I've played a clip from Barbara Jordan. I'm going to play one more clip if you don't mind. But the reason I'm going to play this clip is because I want you to understand the difference between these two people. I want you to go look up your own Sheila Jackson Lee clips, and I want you to understand what she has to say and try to figure out her values and her morals and what drives her and what good she's doing for her voter base. I would encourage you to go look that up. In the meantime, I want to play this clip from Barbara Jordan and, and see if you can figure out What's changed between when she gave the speech, which was in the early 90s, and now? Okay, this is from 1995. Um, This is Barbara Jordan's report to the Commission on Immigration. She's basically reporting to Congress what they've found and urging them to do immigration reform. If you hear an angry guy yelling in Polish in the background, that's not on the YouTube video. But I'm going to just play a little clip. It's five minutes long. I'm not going to play it all. Just listen. If we are confident enough as Americans in our culture, we should welcome the legal immigrants. We should be able to accommodate diversity in our society. Are we strong enough? Amen. Amen. Those who ought to be in and retain a commitment to the rule of law by keeping those out who shouldn't get in. If a we Democrat? are to preserve our immigration tradition and our ability to say yes to the people who want to get in and seek entry, we've got to have the strength to say no to the people who are not supposed to get in. Imagine we need that. to make deportation a part of a credible immigration policy. We need to make deportation a part of immigration policy. This is a Democrat, ladies and gentlemen. This is a Democrat. Barbara Jordan, one of my, no, my favorite Democrat of all time. Those that say I'm racist, those who say I'm sexist, those who call me ist, whatever you want. Barbara Jordan is a giant black woman, and I would love to spend time with her. Keep listening. As a nation committed to immigrants and the rule of law, we've got to do that balancing act. The most urgent immigration problem we face today is the unauthorized entry of hundreds of thousands of illegals. Sound familiar? That undermines our commitment to legal immigration. Although the illegal alien may be generally law-abiding and particularly <gasps> in good alien. economic times, maybe we need the illegals. Their entry in violation of the law is a violation of our national... Did she just call them illegals? Remember, there's nothing illegal about a human. There's nothing illegal about being a human, okay? 
nothing illegal about being a human looking for a better life. Well, Barbara Jordan seems to disagree with your snowflake ass. We believe a credible approach to immigration must be comprehensive. First, border management. We support a very simple view about border management. Prevent illegal entries. Facilitate legal ones. The second part of our strategy, work site enforcement. Employment, we believe, continues to be the principal mag illegal alien to the country. As long as U.S. businesses benefit from illegals on their workforce, they are not going to try to help us get on top of the problem. We believe that employer sanctions must be made to work. And... Enhanced labor standards enforcement, essential components of a strategy to reduce the job magnet. Okay, you get the idea. But one thing that was happening back then was that all the quote-unquote Republicans were kind of just looking the other way while people were pouring across the border and quote-unquote taking jobs from red-blooded Americans. And so both parties have kind of flip-flopped. And this is, this is what I talk about all the time. I don't understand how someone who voted then and votes now can be okay with policy flip-flopping. And I didn't vote in 95, so I, I can't see anything about it. It makes sense to me. It, had I been a voter back then, I could have very well been a Democrat. And this goes back to support my theory, or I don't know if it's a theory or not, but my, yeah, theory that... We're constantly shifting to the left. So the, the topics, the policies stay in one spot. Our viewpoints are shifting. So I don't know, but we now have Democrats who are turning a blind eye to the border and ignoring the people that are just pouring through. Whereas if you rewind time to 1995, they were against it. And the Republicans were turning the blind eye. And if that doesn't tell you all that you need to know about our politicians... Nothing I can do for you. Just so happens my viewpoint, my viewpoints coincide with how the right looks today. Now, if things shift over the next 25 years, I'll vote Democrat. I don't care. I, my convictions are my convictions. You won't convince me. I had a buddy the other day that we were text debating about the text, the Houston releasing criminals back into the town, them killing people and not getting arrested. And he, he you know, he he gave his little spiel his little viewpoints about why why it's happening and there's just nothing that can be done about it and i said okay well we're entitled to different opinions and he's like when was the last time somebody changed your mind and i go well i could say that about you as well but i can tell you when uh who know maybe 20 years ago like until then i've been making my own decisions i've been making up my own mind i've been learning how to evaluate things and formulating decisions and i think about things in depth and i look at them from every angle and that's not to say that I don't change over time, but someone's not going to convince me on the spot about something that I've been thinking about for many, many, many years. And when you're 43, 44, 45, 46 and up, you shouldn't. You should be, you should be, have a foundation of convictions. This is what blows my mind when you hear somebody that flips parties mid, you know, midlife, 50 plus. I have a relative who voted for right wing politics his whole life and, and Republicans and all of a sudden, he's hardcore left, which, hey, man, that's, that's what keeps the country moving. But I don't see how you can go from one side to the other. It's like, were you not, did you not have your founda foundations 
like set because the policies haven't changed. And he his and, and it would be different if he stood on his policy, but he hasn't. He has he has shifted his viewpoints from one side being acceptable to the other side being acceptable. And it's just it's odd to me. I'm not big on parties. I'm not I'm really not. But I do notice when people say that they are. Most of them can't tell you any policy other than abortion, gay marriage, transgender, a little bit of immigration, childcare, universal basic income, maybe a oh, green energy. Big, big anything, insert, fill in the blank, pharma, tech, whatever, whatever, anything that's big, they don't like. They don't really know why. They just don't like it. And that's really about it. They're not worried about interest rates, monetary policy, businesses, taxes. I counted the other day up on the board. I wrote down all the taxes that we pay. We pay nine different types of tax, not counting the permits that we have to buy every year. Nine different taxes we pay as a brewery. I'm going to do some math and I'm going to figure out what we spend on our taxes in dollars. And I was going to touch on the tax situation with the, with the county, but I'm going to save it till next week because I'm running so long right now. Just know that I have proof. I've always thought in my head that cities and counties need to work with businesses to create a better climate for them to operate. Make it easier for people to do business, not more difficult. Because what ends up happening is that they end up quitting or selling their businesses to a big business. And now Big businesses gain power. So all the people who love small business and farmers markets and keep it local are also making policy that makes it impossible to do business. So there's a little teaser for next week. If you can't tell, I'm fed up with a government. And I really do believe it's the people that we elect that have screwed things up. Because like I always say, what they care about most is getting reelected. And so while that might sound good in theory, well, if you can give a majority of the people what they want and you get reelected, then everyone wins. The problem that I have with that is that the politicians pander. They'll say whatever they need to say. They don't stand on a hill of convictions. They're not set in their ways. They may or may not vote for something, depending on how it's going to affect them and the, the lobby groups that they're tied in with and the people who write them checks around campaign time. That's what they're motivated by, not doing the right thing, not creating a better environment for businesses. Now, granted, some of the policy they pass may be geared towards that, but they're not convicted. They're not willing to lose an election to say what they think. And to me, that's weak. All the politicians, like, I wish we had windows into their brains and we could see everything they thought. I'm tired of this, like, oh, well, don't say that. You're going to piss off these voters. Don't, don't say that. No, say what you think. And if it's not what the people want and they don't elect you, well, then go do something else. It's like showing up to a party and people trying to kick you out and you refusing to leave. Who wants to represent people whose viewpoints don't coincide with their constituents. That seems like a miserable job. Ideally, the politicians should get elected. He should lay out the groundwork of what he thinks will be best and, and focus on doing that. But instead, they know exactly what it takes to say to get these people to buy into their belief and to get these people and to get these people. And it's not always the same thing. Okay, I'm rambling. You understand what I'm saying. You know what? We, we deserve who we get. We, we vote in the people we deserve. And I'm just going to leave that at that. And basically what this all boils down to is that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is Sheila Jackson Lee minus 45 years. Just, just put, that, put that down on your calendar because AOC was elected. She applied. She, she was appointed as a candidate to run. Basically, you had a group of these people who were swamp creatures, and they went out and they scouted for who they thought would be a good individual to lead the Democrat Party as a congressperson from wherever she's from, New York, I think. And she was a barista. She had no leadership experience. 
She hadn't really accomplished much. She'd been on some boards for some nonprofit, blah, 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 whatever, whatever. But she hadn't made any statements. I mean, look, all she can do is wear a dress that says tax the rich on it. But she's going to figure out that she can get reelected by doing things like that and really doesn't have to lay out solid policy. Yeah, she may throw some buzzwords about the Green New Deal and inequality and equity and all the alphabet soup, you know, make sure that we're hiring transgender soldiers and, you know, all these things that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But since people vote with their emotions and they understand where she's coming from and they know what it's like to be poor, where she came from, then they vote for her. And she offers nothing to them. She would probably make their lives worse. Just look at Sheila Jackson Lee. Go to her district. Look around the way that those people live, the crime that happens there, and ask them, how much better has your life gotten in the last 35 years from Sheila Jackson Lee? And none of them will be able to say anything. And I don't need to say anything else. <laughs> if you can't tell, I despise Sheila Jackson Lee. Okay, I think that's going to pretty much wrap up today's show. It's 5.30. I've still got things to do. Sunday chores. i still got to edit this. Blah, blah, blah. I do think it's interesting. We're living in a time where everyone's shouting, let's go, Brandon. <laughs> if you don't know about that, just Google. Google, let's go, Brandon, and then hit videos. We are living in a movie, I tell you. People are literally shouting, F the president. That's crazy. It's crazy. But he did get 81 million votes, which is more votes than any president ever got. <laughs> uh, 81 million isn't the number, but it's funny that he said that. It's kind of funny. His brain is mushy and mine is too now. So I'm going to go. I appreciate you guys listening. I know today was extra long, but that's okay. I won't charge you any extra. Life in Paradise podcast. One of these days I'm going to switch over to something else. I might do a YouTube channel. I don't know. It seems like a lot of work. But until then, I'll keep spewing my feelings here once every week or two. Thanks again for listening to Life in Paradise podcast. If you want to send me an email, you can send it to nikasaleandsurf at gmail.com. I've got a business for sale, by the way. If you're interested in buying a sailboat charter business in Nicaragua, hit me up. Probably the most fun business you've ever been a part of. Thanks again for listening. Keep it tranquilo.
children.